Hello listeners and welcome to the Chosen Brew podcast. I'm your host Ian McNally and as regular listeners to this show will know, I normally only release an episode once a month on the 13th day of each month, but I couldn't sit on this one. This is an episode with a brewing giant from the US, Colby Chandler from Ballast Point, someone who's been at the pointy end of the industry and ridden the wave of craft beer in the USA and also has been through the thing of acquisition and the question of independence. But we cover a lot of ground in this interview. Well, Colby does, and it was an absolute pleasure and for him to make the time on his last night in Australia to talk us through his six beers that changed everything. Let's get into it. Welcome to the Chosen Brew podcast, the podcast where guests talk their way through six beers that changed everything. And today I'm sat with Colby Chandler from Ballast Points. Welcome, Colby. Thank you. Thanks for having me on the podcast. So, Colby, you're vice president of Ballast Points uh, and speciality brewer. It's been quite a whirlwind for your last, how long have you worked for Ballast Points? 20 years? July will be 20 years for me. Wow. Now, it's rare in this day and age to spend... 20 years in any job. So tell us a little bit how you got started in Ballast well, Point. Free beer is a driving factor <laughs> in that 20 years, I think, for the most part. Um, I got into it. I was homebrewing, basically. Um, when I moved to San Diego uh, 20, almost 24 years ago, I was in the restaurant business. And uh, I was living in Hawaii at the time. And Hawaii had zero brew scene, for the most part. No homebrew stores or brew pubs or really any any micro breweries back at the time and I moved to San Diego immediately jumped into home brewing uh, I had always loved craft beer since I was five years old basically and then uh, had a kind of a affinity for making the beer and just kind of decided to take a 70% pay cut to work more hours and got a job at Ballast Point Brewing Company wow a 70% pay cut is that paid dividends now Oh, 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 it's paying dividends, dividends now. absolutely. Yeah, you're, yeah. you're, you're well, back in I'm black. S- <laughs> I'm sitting in Melbourne talking to you. That's, that's a pretty good dividend right there. So, um, Ballast Point, I did not, to my shame, I didn't know that um, it had, until episode nine of this podcast, in fact, I didn't know it was born out of a homebrew shop. Yeah, like, it was 1992 when we started Homebrew Mart. Homebrew, and then you get acquired 2015 for $1 billion around. Yeah. Now, the American dream, right? <laughs> it certainly is. Um, how do, how how does unless you're a craft happen? beer drinker and then you're just mad. <laughs> <laughs> how does that happen? Because there'll be people diligently working away in their homebrew uh, shop, and uh, they'll be thinking, "How does how is this even possible?" Well, I, I always kind of joke that uh, our name Ballast Point. Uh, there's a point in the entrance to San Diego Harbor where the original kind of Spanish uh, explorers landed and discovered, you know, his first Westerner to discover San Diego right there, Point Loma, Ballast Point, and they would use the cobblestones uh, to give their boats ballast to ship them back uh, to the East Coast and back to Europe. So giving balance to that boat has kind of been our theory for a while, and I think balance really has a lot to do with all our beers and how we've gotten from the home brew all the way up to the professional brewer. And to be honest, it's, it's, it was a lot of hard work, you know. And without that balance and without that foundation that we created, you know, over the 
the first 15 years of the brewery, we would have never been able to to build the huge skyscraper that we are today, you know, over the past five, six years and eventually be acquired by Constellation. And is there any time in that 15 years where you're starting off where you're thinking, is this for us? Shall we? Shall we? Uh, or, or you're I would, <laughs> weekly, I would say, for the most. Every time I had my hand in a drain or, you know, hung over the next day. No, I mean, I, I always joke that brewing is a lot of hard work, but it's not hard work all the time. You know, so as bad as it gets, there's always the good times, too, where, you know, just hanging out and drinking beer with good people is uh, it's kind of a nice way to spend your day. Yeah, and kind of, is, is, is that what gets you enthused in the morning? Same um, company for 20 years. You know, what gets you out of bed in the morning well, to that's, at Ballast Point? Well, I, I took kind of a different path than most employees at Ballast Point. Um, first started working there just as a homebrew clerk. Uh, eventually, they saw my talent in management and organization and uh and also my skills as a brewer a little bit so i became the third the first non-owner brewer at ballast point and i also took over the homebrew store at that point and kind of ran that location for the first 16 years but that allowed me to kind of stay i was production brewer for the probably the first six seven years and then once we opened up a separate production facility that gave me kind of the uh anonymity because they were so busy with production that I just started cranking out new beers and really started kind of working the chef part of it and the recipe formulation part, which I enjoy. I love, I'm a home chef. I love cooking all the time. So that creative, that it took me a long time to realize I was an artist and that beer was my art. So it was kind of a, for me, it was a great, great path to take because it just like, you know, it's kept me creative all 20 years now. And now I have lots of stories and lots of beers under my belt, you know, with great stories behind them. So you're saying that you started off kind of on the bottom rung of the ladder. I couldn't have been far closer <laughs> to the bottom. I was employee number eight, actually, uh, oh, at wow. Point, And I've we have over 900 employees now. Fantastic. Wow. So... Has, does that mean that all the senior level at Ballast Point have kind of worked their way up from the bottom, or have you got some uh, imposters in there? Uh, there in the beginning, you know, we had a we had a handful of people that survived basically all the years that kind of you know rose to the top a little bit, but eventually you have to hire people that are smarter than you because you know you get to a point where you can only do so much, wear so many hats. Uh, it just you want the business, any business to be successful, you have to kind of be willing to take it to the next level and, and you need help to do that and you need smart people to do that. So, you know, it, it's kind of a combination of uh, old school employees and then really smart new school employees that have gotten us to where we are today. Yeah, I was going to ask you about the rise of Ballast Point was kind of exponential and, and you were doubling in size almost have grown 80 to 100 percent was that true year on year almost well i am i'm pretty horrible with conversions but I'll, I'll talk american barrels which is 31 gallons for an american barrel uh 2010 was a really big year for us we won champion small brewery at the world beer cup kind of the olympics mm. of uh, brewing in the in the world and we were only doing 13,000 barrels that year uh, last year in 2006, we did close to 400,000 barrels, so about a 1,100% increase over six years. For the Australian listener who doesn't understand gallons, that's a lot. That's a lot. Yeah, no <laughs> conversion needed. Just those numbers are good. So how how do you um, how do you possibly have a handle on and maintain quality and maintain your consistency and kind of 
who who you are as an identity as a brand culture um, yeah when you're yeah. kind of uh, growing so quickly in terms of even things like logistics raw materials your suppliers the quality of ingredient you're using how do you how did you get around and, and grow well, so lucky quickly? for us we had that 15 year foundation you know what I mean and San Diego currently is almost at 150 breweries in the county just by itself so the the collaborative kind of nature of San Diego beer business kind of over the years really helped a lot. And for us, uh, just having that solid foundation in our own market, kind of the southwest region of the United States, really allowed us to kind of put the gas on and, and be able to move into the, we're still not in all 50 states yet, but you know, we should be by the end of the year. But it's just kind of that, that sustained growth. Uh, quality and culture are probably the two most important things to us. And Constellation, our, our, uh, our new parents. Um, we have probably one of the best labs on the West Coast, let alone brewery labs. Um, there's 180 touch points now that each beer gets tested through the whole way. I mean, before we just had our pallets. That was wow. the only fancy tool we really had. And we were lucky to have good techniques and... Uh, uh, a good sense of what beer style should be and a palate and you know world traveling and kind of knowing what we're looking for so but the consistency comes from those labs and basically making sure that that we're, we're no matter where the beer is being brewed uh, currently we're running five five breweries in Southern California six locations uh, two big production breweries and we're about to open up a Virginia brewery too so being able to go down to the actual gene of the beer and map the genes of the beer is really going to help consistency as we continue to grow and get bigger, no matter where we brew that beer. Yeah. And, you know, and, and all of that, again, it's, it was honestly hiring smart people. You know, this is the fifth version of Ballast Point that I've worked for, you know, from the frat house days where we would all eat lunch together to, you know, a worldwide company, basically, you know, uh, importing exporting all that good stuff so it was just uh just a solid it, it all goes back to the beer if yeah. we wouldn't have had the beer a good beer and a good foundation to build upon it then we would have never gotten to this stage that we are now yeah i think a lot of um australian brewers um worry about quality control if they let it out out of their sight let the beer out of their sight is going to sit on a pallet in the sunshine and things like that getting bigger does do you, does your ability to control that improve because you've got more sway or does it kind of diminish because you you're in more places and you don't know who's got your beer every brewery needs a bill pair you know i think we've had three over the past 21 years of ballast point and when you're relying on humans to brew consistent beers over and over again obviously uh training uh retaining employees all those kinds of things are are important for a smaller brewery. As you get bigger, obviously your equipment becomes the the main issue, and you know you start to kind of the the mundane kind of robotic motions that a human would do in a smaller brewery kind of now start switching more mechanical. So that that helps consistency more so, I think, as you get bigger. Excellent. So. Well, you're here to talk through the six beers that changed everything for you, so we'll jump in. I've got, I think I've got 11. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, that famous American 11 pack of beers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll, <laughs> I'll stick with six, and then I'll shoot through five real quick. Oh, definitely. Excellent. So um, 
beer number one? Beer number one. Um, I kind of got my uh, my drive for locally made beer, you know, which is always going to be the freshest product for my parents. Uh, my dad went to the University of Washington up in Seattle. Um, he was there in the 70s when the local breweries were Olympia and Rainier. So I have pictures of me drinking beer in the tasting rooms at five years old, basically. So kind of that, you know, is it uh, genes or environment? It's probably a little bit of both. Uh, but they kind of really instilled in me that that kind of local vibe. They, they liked that local brew scene back in the day, even when those breweries were fairly big and microbreweries weren't even a thing yet. That was their local microbrewery compared to some of the big boys back in the day. Um, yeah, Rainier, nice, light lager you know it's still fun every once in a while i'm up there i i love a i love a pitcher of uh rainier and some crab dungeness crab cakes you know it's hard to go wrong with that and uh, even though it's not made there anymore <laughs> what's the what's the size how much of that are they selling and what's the size of of rainier yeah yeah oh geez i don't know uh i know they got i think the brand got bought in the mid 90s i believe and then they got moved to probably the midwest milwaukee something like that not exactly sure who owns them now. Probably should have looked that up. But <laughs> well, I, I don't know. It's still good. You know, you've been it's, drinking yeah, there's a time and a place old. for Rainier. You know, I don't <laughs> drink it every day. I don't encourage people to drink it every day. But, you know, there's a time and place for every beer. Yeah, it's good Good drinking beer for a five-year-old. Is that? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's, uh, my, my parents are so proud. They'll love this. <laughs> so, choice number two. Um... So kind of as I became a little bit more legal drinking age, um, I was in Hawaii. I lived in Hawaii for 11 years. It's, like I mentioned earlier, a horrible, horrible brewing scene. So for me, you know, Budweiser was probably 14, 14 to $17 a 12 pack. And that was, you know, in the 80s, you know, 80 to 93. So that would be the beer of choice. But Whenever I'd go to a party, I'd always have a few bottles in my pocket that I went to the local store and got some imports. And I love the Sam Smith Brown, uh, the Nut Brown, the Sam Smith Nut Brown, and the Oatmeal Stout. But I really liked the Nut Brown and that kind of the the richness and the maltiness of it. And it was kind of that that beer that got you that got me out of the macro lagers and the import lagers. And I mean, I, I still drank a bunch of those, but that was the beer that all my friends didn't like and wouldn't drink and i'd pull those two bottles out drink those and then i'd go drink the budweiser out of the refrigerator <laughs> with everybody else so. so so in hawaii was it the case that there was availability of some good beer but it was expensive or was there just not an availability of uh it was both it wasn't it, the availability was limited i mean Hawaii is the farthest landmass away from anywhere. So, you know, there's obviously a lot of Japanese beers and Pacific, you know, rim beers for the most part. But nothing that was really pushing kind of those types of flavors with any kind of distribution. You know, obviously there was probably Anchor Steam and, you know, Sierra Nevada was doing some fun stuff. But I kind of like that, that, that European style a little bit more in the beginning there and a little bit less hops yeah. you know, and bitterness. Which I think you're kind of starting to see again. I think we're in that 20-year pendulum. I think we're about two, three years away from nut brown ales kind of coming back and amber ales being kind of uh, popular again. Yeah, I think definitely there's been a prominence of hops uh, 
particularly hops aren't going away. Yeah, no, but particularly in the American market, the the, the hoppier the beer has been hop chases. Yeah, and but you're also kind of seeing that. I mean, the fruit beers over the past two or three mm-hmm. years have been amazing. 1996 Pyramid Apricot, you know, wheat beer and. Uh, um, what else? Uh, Pete's Wicked Winter with blueberry and blackberry in it. You know, there was those fruit beers back then. And then instead of drinking uh, craft lagers, you know, we were, I was searching out, what, Stein Lager, St. Paula Girl, you know what I mean? Those kinds of lagers back in the day. And now what? Pivo Pills, right? So we're kind of falling back, I think, into that same pendulum swing and that same flavor profiles for all this new generation of beer drinkers that are coming along that don't want to drink their dad's bitter beer. You know what I mean? And they're kind of learning the styles and they don't, you know, if you're a wine drinker, you don't, you don't start with a hundred year old vine Zinfandel, you know, you, you start with a rosé and kind of work your way up into those big tannins and acidity. And I think, I, I think we're seeing that shift a little bit, you know, IPAs are here to stay. You can't deny the flavor no. of hops and <laughs> yep. IPAs and I yep. love IPAs, but there's 85% of the beer drinkers out there that are just learning how to drink beer. So they're going to have to go through all the styles, I think, themselves. Yeah, and I think probably that more more prominence of uh, those multi-beers and um, kind of sweeter beers, less uh, less challenging, exactly as you said, that's going to be the... Yeah, it's a stepping stage for everybody, yeah. I think. I mean, it's... Malt is, I think, what's really going to separate beers here in the future because everybody knows hops now. You know what I mean? Yeast is becoming more and more accepted and and learned about and educated. But really malt is the one kind of one of the ingredients and water, obviously, that that don't really get enough credit, Mm. I think. And even even with an incredibly hot beer, you have to have a nice, complex malt profile behind it to to really make it stand out, I think. And in your experience um, of Hawaii and uh, particularly where you are in San Diego, um, how much does climate have a play into what beers you're making, and is it is it relevant the climate, or you know, are you just brewing what you like? Well, obviously the weather doesn't suck in San Diego. <laughs> you know, <laughs> well, you're right on the border of Mexico. 68, 69 degrees is the average temperature year round. Uh, it's pretty temperate. I think that that drew more talent <laughs> than an actual beer <laughs> style, or. Um, I'm a big fan of uh, drinking the beer that enhances the moment I'm in, you know, with what I'm eating, what I'm, you know, uh, where I'm at, what time of year it is, what time of day it is. So I'm, a, I'm kind of a seasonal drinker that way. Obviously, uh, Alaska has some pretty dark stouts. And, uh, you know, we have some pretty nice Kolsch's and Golden Nails and Hellas down in San Diego. Um, but Ballast Point, coming from the homebrewing background, you know, we are dedicated to our homebrewing roots. And one of my favorite things about Ballast Point is the diversity of beers that we do. And I don't think the weather or the location has anything to do with that. I think it's just our love for the beer. Yeah, we get kind of uh, a, quite a limited supply of the Ballast Point range in Australia, which is kind We're of... working be- on become, that. Yeah, it's yeah. become more and more prominent on the shelves, most sure. definitely in the last 18 months or so, particularly. People have been really nice about Big Eye. They've, I've had a bunch of stories from brewers and things saying how much Big Eye really affected them and kind of that, that one of the... F- I don't know if it was one of the first. I mean, we've been here a while now in Australia, but kind of one of those first American IPAs that was a reasonable price and kind of a little bit more 
uh, accessible to the market down here. Yeah, and I think like uh, a beer like Even Keel, you know, a, a lower percentage sessionable beer has been a real challenge for Australian brewers in terms of uh, the popularity of a mid-strength and a beer that you can drink in the sunshine all day has kind of been lacking in taste and and kind of an even keel that shows you what you can do yeah, yeah. exactly no, and a uh, lot of australian brewers are brewing those now three and a half percent beers which are tasty and pirate life does mm. their session beer right the yeah the throwback i think throwback. It's called. yeah amazing beer yeah really yeah. good nice yeah. and balanced yeah i think bad shepherd do the tiny IPA i was there the past two days i was brewing with them oh excellent yeah we're doing a collaboration it'll be in cans and everything coming out here pretty probably by july i think perfect we'll look out for that one yeah we did a strong uh, american pale ale with uh, finger limes and a little bit of coriander beautiful so it should be a big hot bomb i don't like coriander fresh sadly but i hope it's nice in the drink well <laughs> they kind of like the belgians use it as an underlying layer of flavor you don't really taste the coriander ever mm. so coriander is really rich in linalool Linalool is a, uh, a compound of hops, like Cascade hops have tons of linalool, kind of a cedary, woodsy, um, almost kind of a rose, you know, potpourri kind of a flavor to it. So it can kind of mimic some of the hot flavor flavors if used underneath. And obviously the finger limes are adding the citrus. So kind of playing off the flavors of the hops by still using something indigenous to Australia, but also something that's similar to San Diego too. Yeah. So that was kind of the theory behind the two. Pirate life have been fantastic with their beers and the consistency yeah and all their beers super, were great yeah. those guys are super nice uh had a fun day yesterday brewing with them was yeah really cool. we'll, t- we'll get onto that a little bit later but looking at the ingredients of uh some of your beers in your in your archive you've got smoke lagers uh jalapenos you've got ghost peppers szechuan pe- pepper <laughs> coconut thai chili i mean is is this a, a is this novelty or is this serious brewing no, this is serious brewing. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm a big fan of savory flavors and beers. Um, again, it goes back to my cooking, I think. You know, I'm, I'm always kind of trying to get inspired in many different levels. And a lot of those beers, you know, there's, there's flavors in the beers that either kind of help prop up, you know, a jalapeno or something like that. Like, like we do a roasted Serrano with our Kolsch beer. You know, that, that nice kind of green, grassy flavor you get from a Kolsch goes great with the roasted green Serranos. Um, coconut, you know, obviously in dark beers is amazing. Coffee in dark beers. So four ingredients are fun, but, I mean, there's, there's only so many, you know, combinations. So for me, it was kind of nice to add even a fifth layer, you know, and it's I'm always amazed at how fantastic beer is with pairing with food. You know, um, compared to wine, wine only covers, I think, a small piece of the flavor pie. Mm. Whereas beer, I can I can give you an umami beer. I can, you know, with these beers, I can give you spiciness. I can give you bitter. I can give you sour. All things that are pretty hard to find in wines and most other beverages. So it's a it's a really good uh, arsenal. And some of these beers kind of mimic. I mean, we do uh, Indra Kanindra, which is a curry stout. So wow. it's an expert stout. has a Madras curry, cumin, cayenne, uh, toasted coconut, and kaffir lime leaf. And basically, it's a beer and food pairing in your glass. You know, and I always joke, it's like our, our plates are vertical and chef's plates are horizontal. So, <laughs> but that's the only difference. You know, it might not be a uh, pitcher beer, you know, something that you go to a bar and 
happy hour, order a pitcher, and slam a bunch of pepper beer. <laughs> but with uh, the appropriate food, you'll drink that pint without even noticing it. And, and the food will enhance the beer, and the beer will enhance the food. So, no, I, I love putting all different types of flavors in beers. I think it's, I think you're kind of missing out if you're a little handcuffed if you stay traditional. Yeah, I think uh, that is kind of for any brewer starting off the dilemma of whether just to brew what's in your heart or whether to brew what you think people want to drink. Yeah. What well, that's that's been our theory at Ballast Point is to make beers that we love to drink and hope everybody does too. <laughs> Cross yeah, the fingers. I mean, yeah. Not a whole lot of uh, uh, marketing and uh, you know research and you know most of it was just yeah let's try this and see if it sticks you know throw it against the wall kind of a deal but ultimately it's just what we like and what our customers like at the tasting bars that eventually gets the beer out into a bigger market perfect so choice three red hook esb uh going back to seattle again my parents moved back to seattle it's where they retired and uh started going back right during most people forget that it's 1983 was when you were actually allowed to make alcohol on premise and then sell it across the bar. So that was kind of the brew pub inception. Was that kind of a hangover from Prohibition or what? Yeah, for yeah. the most part. So I graduated high school in 86, you know, became 21 in 89. So I'd go visit my parents and we would go to Red Hook when they were doing Captain Crunch Pale Ale. And they were putting all kinds of weird stuff into their beers. And they had a little Trollman's Pub. It's right next to the Browers, which is a fantastic beer bar now in Seattle. Just one of the best on the West Coast. And that's kind of where I started getting kind of a, the hot bite a little bit. Red Hook was kind of a bitter, bitter ESP, much like our California Amber that we do. Oh, very similar to that. So for me, that was kind of like that, that getting out of the maltiness, getting into the bitterness a little bit more. Uh, getting into those amber flavors uh, and just kind of enjoying the pub scene in Seattle and kind of the emergence of brew pubs and smaller breweries and kind of that, that being so close to the hop production in Yakima Valley, it was kind of the center there for craft beer in the beginning. Uh, that's where the first brew pub started. The, the Seattle area and California, you know what I mean? We, we have a lot to thank for both of those beer scenes, I think. So Red Hook, you know, that, that was... That was kind of that game changer. That's when I, you know, in becoming 21, my dad dabbled in homebrewing a little bit at that point, but was just making horrible, horrible beer. So, of course, I was kind of sticking to a little bit more pro stuff, but um, that was definitely kind of that entry level, I think, into bitterness for me. Now, we're halfway through, but I think we, we've, we've done lots of talking about around these beers. Let's do choice four, and I've got a couple more questions for you as well. Okay. But let's go into choice four. So there's a little uh, brew pub down by the University of Washington called Big Time Brewing Company. And I went in there during one of the trips back to visit my parents. Uh, they brought me in, and I know for sure they had two IPAs. I swear they had three IPAs on tap, and this was 1989. And that was that was the game changer for me, I think. I was like, wait a second. This is stronger, very floral in the aroma. You weren't getting any of that from the amber ales and the nut browns. Uh, bitterness was kind of ramped up a little bit, and I was pretty heavy kind of into wine at that point, working at steakhouses and things. So it was kind of hitting my, my palate in the same way, the same acidity. And for me, that was kind of, I think, the, the hook. I think the hook stuck at that point. And that was kind of my, my epiphany as far as 
craft beer and kind of wanting to start not necessarily work in the industry, but definitely learn more about it. And then that's kind of where I became a beer tourist. And wherever I went, I found the local pub and, you know, got the directions to the next local pub or the brewery that was around. You know, there was no Internet back then. We had to read about stuff. <laughs> you actually had to talk people to people. <laughs> and yeah, yeah, that kind of stuff to kind of get around. So uh, that that for me was kind of that that game changer. And that's probably the flavors that I chased when I moved to San Diego and started brewing. And you are responsible for Sculpin. Um, myself and a couple other guys that I worked with, yeah. But I was kind of the enabler. I was the boss at the time, so I kind of got it done. And uh, we kind of teamed up. I wanted to... I'll back it up a little bit. There's a One of the hardest contests, I think, in the world is the National Homebrewers Competition in the United States. You have to win regionally. There's like six or eight regions. And then the winners of that go to the national competition, which is held four or five months later. So you kind of have to brew the same beer twice consistently to get a medal in the national. Well, my assistant brewer, Doug Duffield, and my manager in the home brew store were both proficient home brewers. Doug got gold medal, double IPA. George got gold medal, single IPA. So they weren't really brewing together. They drank a lot of beer at a local pub. And uh, I was just like, let me see those recipes. What are you guys doing? You know, I mean, first of all, congratulations. But (laughs) what are you doing? How'd you get that? That's amazing. So it turned out that they were using a lot of similar ingredients, even though they didn't know it. So we kind of went through and cherry picked all the ingredients that were the same. And then I kind of threw in some of my favorite ingredients and techniques that I'd learned, you know, on the professional brew house. And I got those guys on the brew house just to do a little small five barrel batch uh, I really wanted them to experience the same thing that I did when I made beer and went to a pub and sat down and got to talk about it and share it with people. And uh, it was a one-off kind of a thing. And, the, and talk about a hook sticking again. I mean, that was, that, was the, that was a game changer, I think, in San Diego. San Diego had already been on, on their way uh, IPA-wise. There was tons of IPAs around already. But I think that was kind of that first beer that really got packaged and really resonated huh? intended, <laughs> um, with the people because of the hops that we were using, the Simcoe and the Amarillo hops. Uh, Simcoe being that big, danky, like overripe tropical fruit and that just beautiful tangerine from the Amarillo. Amarillo. Um, so I think the, that kind of set that beer apart a little bit. I mean, we were, we were doing two bottle limits when we were first started bottling it. And, you know, we started putting it in six packs in 2007, for $15 a six-pack, 15 American dollars a six-pack. And to this day, it's still $15 a six-pack. So, you know, 10, 11 years later, we're still, we're still crank- 12 years later, we're still cranking out the same price six-pack as we were. So it's pretty amazing how, how far it's gone, a bunch of awards, uh, and then the uh, Sculpin family, you know, with the habanero, the grapefruit, the pineapple. Unfiltered is, I think, in Dan Murphy's right now. As we're speaking, that just that just dropped in. It's only going to be around for a couple months. Yeah, tell us a little bit about the unfiltered and why. What makes that different from? Um, well, we we slightly altered the recipe just a bit. We just lowered the IBUs just a touch, and we kind of moved some of the hops to a little bit later edition, more flavor style, and then up the dry hopping a little bit. Mm. And then we we don't spin all the solids out of it. So we, we're spinning the yeast out, but we're trying to keep the oils in the beer. So that's what's kind of giving it the haze. And 
I think I, I like I like our version of a hazy IPA a little bit better because there there's no yeast in the bottles to break down. The haze is coming from proteins more than anything, and we are pretty adamant about shipping all of our beer almost at freezing temperatures and. That beer especially, you know, needs to be stay, stay cold and mm. to have any kind of shelf life at all. And, so and that's only going to be around for the summer. That's just going to be kind of a one-off here for a little for a little bit. We'll see. Yeah, and so that uh, that process of actually um, shipping the beers refrigerated is expensive, isn't it? And that kind of is why when you go into Dan Murphy's, you'll be paying maybe closer to $30 for a six-pack than a... $20 I would like local. to say that's the whole reason, but no, your taxes are horrible here. <laughs> the taxes are crushing. So no, I mean, you know, it, yeah, obviously it is. It, it's built into the price. The mm. There's no reason to ship here unless it's not coming cold. That would be an injustice mm. to the beer drinkers in Australia. Oh, it's happened a lot. So our, our goal is to keep the quality of the beer protected as close as we can get to the consumer. You know, once it gets dropped off and put on a warm shelf, you know, it's we try to coach a little bit, but in the end, it's hard for that. But mm. we all have dates on our bottles and everything too, so that helps yeah. a little bit. I think that that is becoming a lot more of a fashion, which is yeah. But very shipping positive. cold is a game changer. Yeah, it's day and night with the quality of the beer. Yeah, that's um, especially in an IPA. It's good to know if anyone. Good. That was one of my that was one of my six beers actually. <laughs> oh really? Yeah, Sculpin. Yeah. <laughs> I mean that's I mean that couldn't have been more of an effect on my brewing career yep. than any other beer, you know. So it's been a, it's been quite a ride with that beer. It's yeah, amazing so how far it's gone. Is that number five? Sculpin? Sure, I can do that. Well, yeah, yeah, that, was, oh, yeah, we that was, well actually number five was uh Dorado, our double IPA. Uh, I first made that in nineteen ninety eight basically a year after I started. Wow. And we didn't even, there's a uh, very famous brewery in San Diego, Pizza Port. They also mm-hmm. do Lost Abbey. And they started a strong ale festival uh, a long time ago. Well, Sounds 90, very So I went, and it's all beers over 8% ABV. The problem was it was old ales and imperial stouts and barley wines and nothing hoppy. So the next year, I'm like, we're going to make an 8% beer that's just got tons of hops in it. Uh, I love crystal hops. I was drinking Rogue uh, Brutal Bitter at the time and just really liking the flavor of the crystal hops. So the next year, we made this 8% light, bitter, obnoxiously dry hop beer, and it it lasted about three hours at the three-day festival. So it was just gone immediately. So that was kind of, and I had never really, we called it a strong hoppy ale. There was no double IPA moniker to it. Uh, right at that time, Pliny the Elder started getting mm-hmm. brewed, uh, pure hoppiness from Alpine. The next year, Rogue came out with uh, I2PA, and then uh, Stone's Anniversary Beer was their double IPA that became Ruination. So that was all around that, that time. So for me, coming off of you know the, the big-time brews in Seattle and Red Hook and you know finally getting my, my time at Ballast Point to kind of do something fun, going into that nice big uh it, and i think that was kind of san diego pale ale has been kind of thrown around a lot over the years and i think what was kind of special about those early days of the double ipas was that we were ripping a lot of the sugar out of the beers and not using a lot of uh crystal malts uh that add a lot of residual sugar to the beers so the beers were kind of light and that kind of golden double ipa color uh 
we were adding tons of uh, dry hopping. So the brightness of the beer, not only in the color, but the way the aromas jumped out of the glass, uh, the way the, the bitterness, you know, kind of grabbed on you a little bit. I think that was kind of that and the other IPAs that were being made at the time that kind of started helping define the San Diego style, you know, as not being muted uh, white labs, you know, and the California ale yeast, which originally was home brew mart ale yeast and uh, home brew mart lager yeast with the German lager that they do now. Uh, those those yeast strains weren't the the malty fruity British strains that the East Coast and Seattle and Oregon were using, and I think that also helped really add a lot of brightness to the beers. So those those double IPAs in the beginning were unlike anything you know that most people had tried before. And obviously the knowledge and the passion that you have now, and also the experience you've. You still operate the homebrew marts. Yeah, You're still going. Oh yeah, so definitely. Are, are you gonna... twenty? This is our twenty-fifth anniversary of homebrew mart. So it started <laughs> in nineteen ninety-two. Uh, we took out the brew house, the second brew house. We we ran the first brew house into the ground. Basically, didn't even sell it or anything. It just basically crumbled underneath our feet. <laughs> and then uh, we put in another brew house that got moved up to our current Long Beach location. Is all doing sour beers now. And uh, we installed a one-barrel brew house in the homebrew mart. Uh, kind of did a uh, private room, so now now we do two or three classes throughout the uh, every week. Um, we can do private events back there. We recently uh, brewed with a bunch of Marines, you know. So it's it's continuing to still be the hub of the San Diego brewing industry in San Diego, as it has been for 25 years. And so that is there's no sign of that you know sometimes when no, what? businesses we, change or get you know we, we can't ever forget that i mean that is our, our the homebrewing are are the roots of, of ballast point you know um that's the basis of our creativity you know i think it it grounds us as well and as you continue to grow not only is consistency and culture but also innovation is kind of a big deal as well um, and the home brewers are a big part of that, you know, and we, we have a little five barrel brew pub in little Italy, right downtown San Diego that puts out two to three brand new beers a week, mm. basically. So, you know, we still have that home brewing spirit for the most part. And it's a lot like home brewing because we, you know, we're making 10 kegs at a time and it's going to six tasting rooms. So I've had beers that I've made that I didn't get to try because it just sells <laughs> out so fast. So just like taking a five gallon home brew to your par- to a party you know, and you've massaged it for three to five weeks and it's gone in two hours. You're like, oh, no, last time I bring that beer to a party. <laughs> well, you bring lots of beers to lots of parties over the years. Um, what is your sixth choice? Sixth choice, uh, I love Orval. Uh, definitely one of my top ten beers. Um, I love how you can, you can get four beers out of the same bottle, really which is amazing to me because if you get it fresh, it actually has hop character to it and very little Britannomyces character that none of that, you know, horse blanket kind of flavors. But if you get a nice old bottle that's been sitting on a shelf in the States, now it's all Brett and very, very little hops. And then if you stick it in the refrigerator for a little while and let all the yeast settle down to the bottom and you decant half of it off, you get a nice clear Orval and then you swirl up the other half Pour it into a glass. Now you kind of have the the cloudier version of Orval. So now you 
I mean, it's just such a diverse beer. It's it ages gracefully. It's it's just a classic, classic beer. Yeah, and it's kind of one of the first beers that not only kind of taught my palate about Britannomyces and how it kind of changes over time, and it's not sour. Britannomyces is a yeast like Saccharomyces. It's not a bacteria, so you really shouldn't get any sourness from it at all. But it just added so many different flavors to it. And now with the sour brewery that we have in Long Beach and the production brewery, production sour brewery that we're building right now, uh, we're doing 100% Britannomyces fermentations with very Orval-like characteristics to it. And it's so cool to have it, you know, uh, Grunion, you know, Mm -hmm. is here uh, in Australia. And we've been doing 100% Brett fermentation of Grunion. So you get those big, nice uh, mosaic hops in the nose. But you get this really, like, dry, almost chalky, mineral, pineapple kind of flavors from the Britannomyces fermentation. So, again, kind of full circle, kind of going back to Orval a little bit. Well, before we get on, we've got two more things to go through, which is your ultimate beer snack and the receptacle that you'd like to drink the six beers out of. Um, but before we get on to that, um, tell us a little bit. You've, this is your last night in Australia. So tell us about what you've been up to in Australia. Um, what an amazing city. Uh, I love the international feel of it. Um, I love just the smart decisions you can see just with city planning sometimes, you know, that I notice traveling around a lot. And honestly, the beer surprised me. It's amazingly good. I really haven't had a, a drain pour yet. I keep trying all these beers, and, you know, there's there's little issues here and there with them, but overall, compared to other countries that I visit, you know, even Japan, South Korea, Chile, I mean, it's, you guys have it great here. I mean, it's, the, the brew scene is vibrant. Uh, you can see the passions behind everybody. You can still see everybody's kind of friends. You know what I mean? And kind of like hanging out with each other, you know, from brewery to brewery. Um, so it's it's been a it's been eye opening f- for me. And it's and I love the weather. I like the cool weather, too. So it's it's hitting 90 degrees in San Diego back there. So I don't <laughs> mind putting a little jacket on every once in a while. Well, that's great. We're, yeah, we're kind of sat by the fireside here at Stomping Ground. So that's kind of nice um, drinking a Roush beer. So um, I just ask you as well for those Australian brewers who are listening what did like you the u.s scene is way in advance of what it is in australia in in every respect um but what advice can could you give to uh, the australian brewing scene um you know can we learn from any mistakes we kind of hold up the the u.s scene as kind of the paragon and the the holy grail of uh, craft beer but obviously mistakes were made and obviously things could have been done differently what what does it what does it take to become uh, successful and well, the advantage now for any burgeoning beer community is uh, information, you know, that we didn't have back in the day. You know, we had the going back to the whole reading and talking thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's why it's kind of taken us a long time. You know, it took us, well, 20, since 83, you know, we've been working at it a while. Somebody described uh, the Australian brew scene is coming out of their teenage years, and I and I feel like we almost just got out of our teenage years, to be honest. You know what I mean? We're just starting to kind of become adults and play with adults, you know, in the beer brewing business. So, for us in San Diego, I was the Brewers Guild, San Diego Brewers Guild president for six years, and it was important for me to get the word out about 
where the breweries were, you know, with the maps of the area for tourists. Uh, it was important for me to get a website going so that people would have a resource to go uh, look at breweries when they were coming into town or even if they lived in town. Um, a festival that showcased just San Diego beers was very important and kind of started to really kind of let let the locals know what kind of a scene that they had and they became more proud of it. And then more honestly, it was just trying to get brewers together in a room drinking beer and exchanging ideas and how do you do that beer and how do you do that beer and and I think by doing that we really raised, you know, the high tide floats all boats. Mm-hmm. That that was I think a game changer for us, you know, it was very competitive in 96, uh, Coronado, Stone, Alesmith, Ballast Point all started 95, 96. And that was basically the low point of the brewing industry. You know, it had gone through a burst of a lot of breweries making bad beer and not being very good business people. And then they were like, oh, the craft beer's fad's over. So, of course, that's when we opened up a brewery. But I think <laughs> having that that basis of those brewers and then them helping the brewers that came after them to make sure that they continue to make their beer better because the last thing you want as a community or as a beer owner or brewer is for somebody to go into a brewery and have a bad beer and have a craft beer for the first time and it's bad because what's going to motivate them to ever make the effort to go do that again so if, if one or two breweries are making bad beer, then it hurts the whole kind of community a little bit. And I think it goes the same way with, uh, you know, kind of talking bad against other brewers as well. You know what I mean? Stay positive no matter what the circumstances are. Because the public doesn't want to hear about your complaints with other brewers. They want to hear about the, the collaborative nature of brewing. And they, they, they don't want to... They don't want to hang out with the nerds that are, you know, kind of bashing other breweries and things. And that would be, you know, my suggestion is make sure that you continue to help each other and and just keep the reality of, you know, good beer is good beer. You know, and, and most of the time you got to drink it fresh at the source. So if you can just kind of, I try to keep with those simple rules for myself and I can usually find some uh, good product that way. And talking of uh, beer nerds who, who bash breweries, when you get bought out by or you get acquired for a, a large sum, there are the naysayers who um, are there critical saying, you know, obviously the inevitable press release comes out and says nothing changes, nothing will change. Yeah, and it, it has happened to some other breweries where they do get bought out and they do get changed. Tell us about Ballast Point and what situation you're up to. Uh, I mean, it's been... It's been challenging over the past year and a half. <laughs> I'm sorry if you get tired talking about it. It's one no, of those, no, it's um, important to hear the story because honestly, it's the the information is kind of lacking sometimes with people's opinions, mm-hmm. and it's I am never gonna deny anybody their opinion or anything like that. But I, I would appreciate at least if there was you know some factual information behind it. Uh, I think we were kind of lucky in the fact that you know we were acquired by a brand marketer. Um, they're a 50-year-old, uh, still family-run company um, that owns products all over the board from Opus, Mondavi, uh, Miomi, Svetka Vodka, High West Whiskey. Uh, they, they got into the brewing business four years ago 
with the purchase of the Medela Group from AB InBev. So in order to avoid an antitrust lawsuit in the States, AB InBev had to give up their rights to those beers in the United States. So Constellation bought those rights, built a brewery in Mexico, and only sells those beers to the United States. So they're new into the brewing scene. So their purchase of Ballast Point was kind of, I think, an investment in craft, not the demise of it. They want to be a part of craft. You know what I mean? They, they, they love the high-end export, obviously, beers. They love the high-end wines, the high-end liquors. We're their high-end craft beer brand. And I've heard nothing but culture and quality, you know, and the importance of maintaining that. If you're going to buy a company that's growing 1,100% a year for a billion dollars, you don't fuck with it, right? You don't go in and try to change a bunch of stuff. If anything, I think they're just trying to kind of learn from us a little bit. And they don't have a... They don't have their own distributors. We are in distribu- you know, distribution houses. So I, th- I think it's, yes, they are a big company. You know what I mean? Yes, they are global. And they only sell wine globally. They don't sell beer globally. So they're not even really an international player on the global market. And they're a fairly young company. I just, I feel like they're kind of, you know, they want to be a part of the cool kids, not, not figure it out how to get rid of them. So I think it's a, it's a fun position to be in. Uh, all the products that they own, I've been spending money on my whole life, basically all the wine and everything. So it's, it's going to be fun to see not only, you know, what they can do with their resources as far as Ballast Point can get to the next level, but also how we can start kind of maybe even intermingling the two and start to be able to do wine beer hybrids and, and be able to use some of the best wine product and wine barrels on, that there are on the market. So. I don't know. I'm 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 excited about it. And yeah, I'm well, far from offended. Yeah, well, I think one of the um, things that is often forgotten about is that actually the resource and investments in Ballast Points will actually feed the brewing industry um, because you're going to train up staff who will then go on to maybe create their own brewery or go on at work and take your expertise and quality control. I'm, and also, I'm also never going to apologize if the first time somebody ever has an IPA, it's a grapefruit sculpin. You know what I mean? Because they just wanted something with grapefruit in it. And they're like, wow, this is pretty good. I've never had any, anything that felt like this on my palate and the bitterness. And, and then hopefully, you know, the, the trickle down would be they find their local brewery and go in there and try their IPAs, you know. You've got to remember that we're we're only selling to a small part of the beer drinkers. So if we can somehow help get the information out and get liquid across people's palates that had never had those flavors before, I can't see how it wouldn't help the whole industry as a whole. And on to a more important issue, and I hope I'm not being too personal here, but where's the beard? Where's the what? The beard. The beards. Oh, for me? Yeah. Uh, I lost it's, that I lost that out a year and a half ago. It's in storage, hopefully. Um, possibly. <laughs> I, I'm growing my hair out because this is more of a corporate look now, I think. <laughs> what percentage of your brewing uh, talent is lost when you shave your beard off? <laughs> oh, jeez. Well, I, I had a huge beard for a long time, and I shaved it, and it really shocked people. I'm, I'm still kind of under the radar a little bit. Like I can, I can kind of walk around with a little bit of an, an, anonymity now. Um, but I always had to remind people that I didn't come out of the womb with a beard. <laughs> so we'll see how far that gets. Well, let's finish off with your, uh, with your perfect beer snack and also a receptacle to drink your beers out of. 
I'm always a big fan of a stem glass snifter or something like that. I like to be able to concentrate the aromas out of it. I like to be able to hold the glass without warming up the beer at all. Um, and I like a thin glass, you know, the more crystal the better. I think it's just kind of a nicer way to, to drink any beverage out of it. Uh, as far as a beer snack, I can't give you just one. I mean, <laughs> go for it. <laughs> nah, I can't. I mean, it's it's again, it's you know, where am I at? What am I eating? Those all those kinds of things kind of dictate the snacks I am. I mentioned, well, I've had a few lamb pies while I've been here in Australia. I can't think anything better than a Sam Smith's nut brown to go with a lamb pie, right? That kind is of a great very combo. bridge flavors, a lot of similar uh, ESB. Anytime you get a uh, amber ale, when they're when they're making the crystal malt to get it to that amber color, it's actually going through a Maillard reaction, where you're, you're browning the sugars, uh, and um, the same thing that happens when you grill meat, the sugars in the meat are actually, or you bake a bread, that that browning for the crust, that's that Maillard melanoidin kind of reaction in there, and I and it's it's amazing how much those flavors are similar. So if you can bridge those flavors between the beer and the food, that's always amazing. Um, can't go wrong with something fatty like a pork belly or fried chicken with a double IPA. Um, Jamaican jerk chicken with sculpin if you want to like intensify the heat a little bit more. So it kind of goes all over the board, you know, for me. It, I, I, I probably do at least two beer dinners a month for the most part. I've probably done over 400 over the past 20 years uh, at Ballast Point. So I'm constantly beer pairing and looking for different things and it's it's a it's a wasted opportunity if you're not trying to pair beer with the food that you're eating um just because it i honestly if you're doing it right it enhances both of them and you, ha- you have to eat so you might <laughs> you as well do. pair something up with it right <laughs> well colby it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on thanks very much for making the time on your last night in australia and uh it's been a, yeah great pleasure no, it's, to talk it's to my you. pleasure thanks Thanks for the invite, whoever invited me. <laughs> yeah, thanks to the in-laws. <laughs> thanks to the in-laws. That was a good dinner at uh, Young and Young and Jackson, Jackson the other yeah. night. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks very much, Colby. Hey, and a safe pleasure. trip back to uh, America tomorrow. It's, it's, this is the fifth continent I've brewed on, so I've got two more to go. <laughs> so it's been, been a good uh, check off my list for me this trip. Yeah, well, good luck with the, with the other two. Cool. <laughs> awesome. Thanks, thanks Colby. Thanks so much. Cheers. So that was it, Colby Chandler of Ballast Points. I really hope that you enjoyed listening to that as much as I enjoyed interviewing Colby. It was a real insight and somebody who's been through what Ballast Points have been through in the last 20 years and has gone from a homebrew mart into a company which has been acquired for $1 billion has got an insight that most of us will never have. So thanks very much for Colby for making the time on his last night in Australia. And and also I should give some thanks to my father-in-law, Neil, because it was Neil who at the Young and Jackson tasting on the Friday night of Good Beer Week costed Colby and um, told him about this podcast and uh, really set up the date. So thanks, Neil. Um, Despite being married to your daughter, I hope that you can set up some more dates around beer in the future. 
Now, for those listeners joining us from the US for the first time, welcome. I hope you enjoyed listening. I really hope that you'd listen to the back episodes and subscribe and learn a bit more about what's going on in Australia. This podcast goes out free on every format, so please do us a favour and spend a minute or so reviewing us on iTunes or following us Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, all the rest. I'd love to hear your feedback and also share the podcast, share it on your social media, share it on your different pages and let other people who are passionate about beer know about it. There's some great beer stories that's been shared already, and I'm sure there's lots more to come. We're going to resume normal schedule. So the next episode is out on the 13th of June, and that will be with Fury and Son. So make sure you subscribe so you don't miss anything, and I look forward to talking beer with you next time. Thanks for listening. <laughs>